1: Hi, I'm Rob Schneider, and on behalf of my co-host, Kevin David Thomas, this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain, and make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to our podcasts on Broadway World and Stitcher. Last month, I produced a centennial celebration of the Broadhurst Theatre. At that performance, an audience member stopped me and said that if it wasn't for the Broadhurst, he wouldn't be here, explaining that his parents were married while both appearing in Fiorello at the Broadhurst. I asked who his parents were, and he responded that his dad was Ron Hughesman. Needless to say, we begged his wonderful son Andrew to set up an interview for us. In the golden age of musical theatre, Ron was one of the most sought-after leading men. He made a splash in Fiorello, while at the same time being courted by Frank Lesser for Greenwillow. But Hal Prince stepped in and offered him a leading role in Tenderloin to stay with Fiorello longer. Yes, he was in a tug-of-war between Hal Prince and Frank Lesser. Soon after that came All-American, On the Town, Irene, Can-Can, and just as Ron's career was at its zenith, tragedy struck and he began to lose the power of speech. To tell us how he regained his voice and what it was like to work with such legends as George Abbott, Ray Bolger, Bach and Harnick, Bernadette Peters, Debbie Reynolds, and countless others here via telephone from his house in California is Tony nominee Ron Husman. My career started at the very top and went to the very bottom. Yeah. That's the that way it went. It started, it's a reverse career. <laughs> <laughs> And I had no idea. You know, it was very simple for me at first. I well, mean, right. every within one year, uh, the world was offered. Yeah, we're we're gonna we we will definitely talk about that. So let let me ask you, when did you come to New York City?
2: Well, I was doing stock in um, Wallingford, Connecticut. We were. Um, My wife, at that time, she was my fiancee from Northwestern Patsy Peterson. And um, she and I and two others, uh, another guy, Jim Garrison and Nat Trumbull, the four of us used my old Chevy and we drove from Wallingford to Warwick, Rhode Island to Framingham, Massachusetts. Wow. And we. All three places, and when we were in Wallingford one time, somebody said, Hey, they're auditioning for the first new show coming in. It's called, and we all said, Well, what is it? And they said, It's called Fiorello. And we all said, Well, what's a Fiorello? You know, we didn't know what it was. uh, So we got in the car one day, and you want me to start here? Oh, yeah, Yeah. this this is is great, great, Ron. Okay. Well it was a really nice day. We had the day off and it was the girls audition day for Fiorello. So uh, Nat and Patsy and I got in the car and drove in and I dropped the girls off at the Lyceum theater um, stage entrance which is on 46th the theaters on 45th but the stage entrance is on 46th uh-huh girls lined up in their heels and their crinoline skirts and you know mean, all that stuff I and mean, they all had gloves on and some had hats. I mean you know it's really funny when you think of it now but at the time it seemed like exactly the way you should look and so they all got in line and I went up to the stage door and there was a woman standing there with a a clipboard, so I figured that was the person, and I went up and said, look, it's, I know it's the girl's audition, but this is our only day off, I'm in Wellingford, Connecticut, and at the theater there, you know, doing stock, yeah. and I said, I possibly be hurt, and she said, "Well, I don't know. We'll see. It looks like I've got three hours of girls here, so I don't know. Come back in a couple of hours, and I'll see if they'll see you a bad time." And so I went over to Howard Johnson's and sat there as long as I could, <laughs> and then finally I thought, oh, "This is." Too too difficult, so I went over and there was no line, and I panicked and so I at the door, I saw the same woman this was Ruthie Mitchell, of oh yes, of course and, oh, Ruthie was standing there, and she said, Oh yeah, uh, no, just a minute, and she walked back to a bunch of guys um, standing there, and she blah 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 blah, and they said, finally, the tall Oldest man there said, Oh, yeah, sure, turn on the light, let's go back. So they all walked back into the theater, down from the stage, you know, into the orchestra. Uh And I walked on stage and handed my music to, I guess, Hal Hastings at that point, or no, no, it was the assistant. I'm trying to think of his name.
3: Okay. Do you remember what you sang?
2: I sang eight bars of Some Enchanted Evening, and George Abbott said, oh, great, give him a card. What? So they all up and I said, well, what, Uh, and they said, well, this is for the callbacks. Uh, Here's the card and here's the date, and come back and be here for the callbacks. And so I got a callback and Patsy got a callback. They didn't even know we knew each other, as a matter of fact. Oh my God. Because she, earlier, And so we both got a callback, and we came back to town and did the callback, and it narrowed down, and there were, I guess, eight or ten or whatever people standing on the stage, and they said, okay, here's the contract, and we walked forward and signed. And we were on Broadway. Just like that. And, well, you know, I thought that's the way it goes. And so we were late, and we thought, oh gosh, they're going to fire us, for sure. (laughs) Well, anyway, we got into rehearsal and then during rehearsals they pulled me aside and a bunch of guys and said, we want to hear you all kind of sing parts on this thing and they handed us a thing called politics and poker. And so we sang through it and they eliminated some people and pretty soon it was down to... I guess six of us, and they said, okay, you guys are gonna sing this thing. <laughs> and I didn't realize I was gonna be in the sextet. Yeah. And so uh, he, I was one of the poker players, and the only problem was that we're all supposed to be old hacks, you know, sitting around a poker table. Yeah. And I looked about 12. <laughs> And uh, so they said, well, what can we do? We got into uh, dress rehearsals. They said, okay, put a mustache on him and gray his hair. And so uh, that's what they did. And um, however, um, while I was rehearsing, I had an agent already because NCA had was always combing the summer stock things in Connecticut Uh, and Eric Shepard came up and saw me in the chorus of bells are ringing and uh, at the intermission of that show, this was earlier in the summer, he came backstage and talked to me and said, do you have an agent? And I said, no. And he says, well, I'd like to sign you with MCA. And I said, oh, is, how is that I you know, I didn't know, is that a big agent or what? You know, Well, it was a good number, one agency. Wow. I mean, that at Morris. And Eric Shepard was, I don't know, do you know the name? Even?
3: Uh, I think he we've, was, we've heard it before in other interviews, but I don't, I'm don't. i not that familiar with it. Eric
2: Shepard and Bruce Savan really oh, Morris yes. were two big agents. And so And they were together, looking at the show, and so I, uh, Eric said, you know, after the, uh, the intermission, I went back and sat down next to Bruce, and he, he said, I pointed you out, and I said, you see that guy right there? And Bruce said, yeah, and he said, I just signed into MCA. And Bruce was <laughs> not happy. <laughs> um, so anyway, I me. came to New York, to go and an agent. And so, Shaper, uh, Eric was really upset with me being in the chorus, and he said, you know, you, you're not gonna be a chorus boy. He said, I, you gotta be auditioning and doing other stuff. So he sent me at one point to sing for Frank Lesser. And Frank Lesser called me down and talked to me and said, you know, I'd like you to do a show I'm writing, but he said, I've signed uh, Tony Perkins for it, but he's doing this a movie called Psycho, and oh, wow. I'm not sure if he's gonna finish Psycho in time to do it, and he says if he doesn't, I'd like you to do the role in Green Willow. Green Willow, oh,
1: yeah. Oh my Oh, okay, so
2: uh, opening night of Fiorello, uh, I gave my note. this is in New Haven, I gave my notice to Fiorello. I walked up to Ruth Mitchell and gave her a typed what? card. And I knew I thought I was gonna get, you know, shot dead in the spot, you know, like I felt it really explode. Yeah. And she said, okay, and went on with the show. And I thought, oh, okay, well I got through that. I went to the first act and at intermission or the speaker and said Ron Husman and she said, "Would you please come up to the stage manager's desk at the end of the show?" And I thought, oh, here it goes. You know, I'm gonna. That's where I'm gonna get it. and she said, "Oh, Mr. Prince would like to see you at the end of the show." Oh. And I thought, Gosh, well now I'm gonna. They're gonna really be angry. So I, I hardly remember the second act, and I got out of my makeup and got dressed afterwards and went upstairs to the, just in the Schubert in New Haven and went to the desk on stage right and I said, I uh, knew uh, you want me to see Hal Prince, and she said, Oh, yeah, he'll be here in a second. Hal came out, and there was all this noise, and, you know, they're putting, getting the sets ready for the next show and next day, et cetera. And he says, Well, it's too noisy here. Let's go out in the house. So we went through the pass through door and up the stage right. Uh, aisle, you know, up to the back of the theater and then walked across to what would be the stage left side or closer to the front door at the leaning rail. I mean, I remember the
3: spot. You have to remember that I'm thinking visually. Yes, yeah, yeah, we love it. We
2: stood at the standing rail of the the first aisle you'd come into to go down to the center section and he said, I thought, here's where he's gonna explode. And he said, "Uh, Ron, he said, what is your agreement with Frank Lester? And I thought, well, what? You know, what is he asking, what is this? And I said, well, I'm supposed to go there. And as he's composing the score, he wants me to sing parts of it for him. So he hears it vocally. And I said, you know, he just wants me a few days a week to come in, but I have to leave Fiorello because he wants me on call, and he's going to pay me $50 a week. (laughs) Well, not even enough money at that time. But anyway, I said, uh, said, well, he said, the reason I'm asking is we'd like you to star in our next show.
3: Oh, Tenderloin.
2: And, and he said, I said, what what is that? And he said, well, it's called tenderloin. And I, you know, I hardly remember much after that, except you mentioned Maurice Evans. And he said, we would, ha- I would have to come and sing for Morris Evans because he had, you know, approval rights, right. a co-star. And so he said, who's your agent? And I told him. And he said, well, have him call me in the morning. So. After I got back, I had I, I called Eric and he said, "Well, what?" He was in bed, you know. And I'm calling my agent and telling him I've got another show. <laughs> and so anyway, he said, oh, well, uh, great. <laughs> and so then I left the show and Hal said, well, do you know of anybody that could fill in for it? He says, we don't have time to hold auditions. And I said, well, the guy that I'm rooming with is coming in from Northwestern. He's, I, he hasn't been in town yet, but he's a bass baritone and he was doing lots of shows at school. And Hal said, well, I uh, have him come in and sing for me, so he did, and um Al signed him or you know said okay he's he's fine, so he he was coming in with his stuff, he was leaving the apartment as I came in with my stuff to move into the apartment. We had never been in the same time in the apartment right. And, So we're meeting in the hall, and he's going to Philadelphia now to take over for me. And so I went and did a couple of times. I sang for Frank with Abba Bogan playing the piano, and and it was really kind of amazing standing there because I had been in the audience to see Most Happy Fellow, which was considered really a great step forward in musical theater yes. and I was I mean I knew certainly Guys and Dolls and you know I was here with Frank Lesser I can hardly believe it yeah. you know as I'm standing behind him behind, facing the piano and trying to read the notes over his shoulder <laughs> you know. and then I met Tony Perkins came in to one of the things that we met and uh, you know that was all pretty astounding and then I get a phone call a week later or you know, about five days later he says, Ron, uh, it's not going to work out with uh, the guy you um, recommended. And he says, what's your deal with Frank Lesser? And I told him and he said, well, see if you can get out and come back into the show and just open in New York and then we'll have time to look for a replacement. And so I told Frank oh, what the what Hal wanted, Hal didn't want to, by the way, make a phone call to Frank Lesser. I thought, well, why don't you call him? Right. And he said, I oh, don't you call him? Because he didn't want to do that. I guess nobody wants to be, you know, beholden to anybody. Yeah. And uh, so I did the call and Frank said, oh yeah, sure, that's okay. And so, I, again, I met my roommate coming back in the hall, as I'm leaving to replace him. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Jeez. an interesting encounter. And um, so I went back into the show, and um, back in, after I got there, it was uh, Tuesday, I remember very clearly, they said, we have a new number we're putting in the show. And we all, what? You know, the poker players we've done, the bum one, and politics and poker, and they said, we've got a new number we're going to put in the second act. And so Peter Gennaro said, okay, everybody come down into the back of the Erlanger Theater. So we went back and down the stairs into the lounge area, which was large enough that we could sort of stage it. And he said, okay, it's going to be very simple. You're at the table and you sing Little Tin Box, et cetera. And in the last verse, you get up and just come forward and stand in the line and then... Uh, you're saying, uh, and well, a little tin key unlocks. You turn your hand as so you're unlocking it. All five maybe, or six, whatever we were, and um, and he says, "Well, that's it. We rehearsed it a couple of times, and we all started, this isn't gonna work what is 'This
4: isn't gonna work.'" Staging to this It's just sitting there, and then we get up and turn our hands, you
2: know, like a key. Yeah. So we put it in that night, and it stopped the show absolutely cold. Oh my god!
1: You we
2: an astounding. Group of men standing on stage, going, "What have we just done?" You know. Yeah. And it was that way every night, and of course on Broadway, almost every night, it stopped the show cold. You know, it was the eleven o'clock number. Yeah. Yeah. And um, here I was at the time. I didn't even know Howard De Silva. You know, and Howard De Silva was a big star, big time, and a, big, and a great. A great performer. I've had the privilege of working with some really great people, certainly Tom Bosley, and all the cast of Fiorello I mean, these were these were really fine actors. This was not just a schlock group of people who got lucky. Right, right.
1: Ron, <laughs> Ron, may I ask you very quickly, what was it like being in a rehearsal room with George Abbott?
2: Well, It's just very business-like, you know. It's with George Abbott, and I thought oh this is what it's like this is what it will always be like he will get there at quarter of nine and if the rehearsals call for nine o'clock you start at nine o'clock and you finish at five o'clock and he walks out and you go and everything is organized and everything is where it's supposed to be and it happens exactly right and you have Ruth Mitchell running the sets and she tells everybody what to do and they do it nobody nobody does anything other than what Ruth Mitchell says. You know what I mean? Yeah, it
3: yeah. It's like a
2: machine work. And I thought that's the way it always was. I will fill you in on this later. But it's not the way things
4: always <laughs> <come>.
2: <laughs> When But I was too. And I thought, well, that's the way it works. And right. you always put in an 11 o'clock number and it always works. And um, Anyway, the show opened and was everything that the world thought it was, and we thought we had a bomb. I mean, literally, really? everybody, the
4: cast, said, "You know what? Capitol Records is throwing a party. Eat everything you can because this isn't going to go." That was wow. <laughs> no, I
2: didn't talk with Tom Bosley. And he may have had a different feeling and. I'm sure the rest of the cast. I mean, they were all very good and very focused. And I'm sure Pat Wilson and Ellen Hanley and Howard and Pat Stanley and Nat Fry and you know, everybody else certainly, I don't know them. I knew what the chorus thought and the chorus thought it was bomb. We thought it was a bomb and we didn't know. And then the real thrill was when we did the actors' benefit. My goodness, the actors', went cra- the actor's audience went crazy. Oh. I mean, it, it was probably the most exciting night I'd ever spent on the theater. You know, it was just wild.
1: Let me ask you, did you think The Tenderloin was going to be a hit in rehearsal?
2: Oh. Absolutely. I mean, I thought, well, this is it. You know, it's going to happen. And so we went into rehearsal, and um, that was in August. And uh, we got to the opening night in New Haven again. And um,
3: the show opened. Yeah.
2: And I interviewed, I have interviewed Hal and uh, Jerry and Sheldon since, so I know something of what went on, and Jerry and Sheldon said they were kind of, their attitude was not unlike my attitude, like George Abbott is there, and Hal Prince, and, and Bobby, or not Bobby Griffiths was not, well yes, Bobby was there, he didn't die until we were about to go to Vegas. But uh, they said, you know, we had this winning team, and we had just done Fiorello, and uh, everything should work. And they got into the meeting the next morning, and George Abbott says, well, guys, it didn't work. Has anybody got any
1: ideas? (laughs) What? And they nearly fell off their
2: chairs. You know, they said, what do you mean, ideas? And, And Sheldon said to me, he said, and after that, we always said... Always make some alternative plans when you're writing a show so that you don't ever get into that position of going, What? We don't have an idea. You know, we didn't think of anything else or any other variation or what else could happen or, you know. So he said, After that, we always sort of covered ourselves with, Well, if this doesn't work, we could, you know, or whatever. So they sat there and they said, You know, George Abbott said, It doesn't work it doesn't work, because the story is not about the minister, it's about the boy. And this, they gotta fix it, we gotta make it about the star, above the title. Mm. So, another inside story, and I can tell you this, uh, in New Haven, we only were there for a week, but in New Haven, uh, Morris Evans and Alan Foster took us to dinner one night and Morris said to me, he says, Ron, he said, I just want you to know that I've asked to be relieved or removed from the show because he said, it's it's not about me and it's not going to work if it's not about me. He said, it's really about you. And so he said, I've asked to leave and I just wanted you to George Uh, Mr. Abbott I never called him George the only person who ever claimed George was Hal Prince Um, everybody else including Bobby Griffith called him Mr. Abbott and Ruth called him Mr. Abbott and we didn't See, we called Ruth Ruthie, uh, Ruthie we called her Ruth Hal Prince called her Ruthie but anyway um Uh, let's see. Uh, they decided that they did not want to remove George, I mean, uh, Morris, Morris Evans, because they had sold three months of theater parties. And they said, you know, the theater parties could get us past bad reviews or medium reviews. Yeah. We don't want to take the chance of taking him off, so we'll rewrite. Uh, Can I tell you, uh, we had, I think, we had more than a week in Boston. I think we had three weeks in Boston. And every day we came in and they tried to rewrite the scene where he says... Tommy, I know what you've done. You know that you've told the police chief what I'm doing and that there's a trial and blah, blah, blah. And it's up to you to get on the stand and tell them the truth, you know, because sort of the, the climax of the show was in my lap, no matter how you wrote it. And they tried to write it. They wrote it a hundred ways if they wrote it once. And I and they made copies, of course, from the typewriter on onion skin paper, and I got the last one. I could hardly read it <laughs> all the time. And uh, they had uh, the Goldman Brothers that were at Yale at that time, and they were, oh, I guess doing a, uh, what do you call it? A,
3: like the uh, Hasty Puddings or something.
2: No, they were, no, but they were sitting in on tenderloin ah. as, you know, to learn, and and it was, I'm sure they got credit for being, you know, in on the, development of the Broadway show. So they were writing also for the show. And the main problem was to rewrite that scene and they rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it. And finally, we got to New York and we did previews. And the night before we were to open, Sheldon and Jerry came into my dressing room and said, Ron, we'd like to change this lyric here. And I just looked at it, and I said, no, I cannot make another change. Whatever it is, I have to say something the same night in a row. Yeah. Because I can't open tomorrow night if I'm thinking... What am I going to say or change that lyric or this lyric? You know, I just, I said, I can't do it. I'm, I'm surprised I had the guts to say that. But I was so exhausted from changes, you know, constant, constant rewriting and studying my notes. And I'm 22, folks. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I don't know what I'm doing. And, and you have to remember, I didn't know what I was doing. I really didn't. This was. You know, Stardom was being there, uh, and I was I was ready for it talent-wise, but I was not ready for it. Uh, let's see Not emotionally It's not what I mean to say I just wasn't grown up
3: But you had never you been know? In a lead role On Broadway before You had
2: never been d- no, Done that It's a dream You know But that doesn't mean You know what you're doing Exactly yeah. you
3: Totally know? I understand that Because that's
2: Nothing a, to do with That's being a Being yeah, and, and I, I wasn't An adult Right You yeah. know uh, You're just not. You can't make The right choices You need you need a little help there. Yeah, a little experience. So anyway, t- yeah. The thing opened and um, and we got through it and the reviews were, you know, not that good. They were they were pleasant and people enjoyed the show, but they enjoyed of course the wrong scenes. They they were pulling for the the whorehouse and you know, and not <laughs> the church people. And uh, that was the problem. And, and the problem was so evident when we took it to Las Vegas and they cut out the, the preacher's part almost totally. He was just on an equal I, status with the police chief. I, and I was the star above the title. Yeah,
1: Ron.
0: I- it's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say.
2: Yeah, um, we closed yeah. in, I don't know, April or whatever, I think we closed early. No, see, I was still doing the show. I, I was nominated for a Tony. Right. And I have the Gilblum Theater Award, and I mean, everything. Everybody was, you know, I got all kinds of things, and I was prepared to go to the Tony Awards, and so was my wife, except she was nine months pregnant. Ooh. And, she had bought a maternity long dress. I mean, a, a very expensive gown to wear to the Tonys, and uh, of course she was in the hospital <laughs> having oh. a baby. And <laughs> um, so I took her mother with me to <laughs> the Tonys that nice, nice. time in the uh, Waldorf Astoria. Uh, and of course Dick Van Dyke won it, and um, and that's that. But. And we had our first son, Mark, was born
4: Mm -hmm.
2: on April 12th, so that was when the Tonys were. And um, Mm -hmm. then the show closed, and uh, they sold it to Las Vegas because all the girls and all that stuff, you know, they were-
3: Oh, I I thought it was like a pre-Broadway tryout. I didn't realize that the show closed on Broadway and then went to Vegas.
2: No, no. It closed on Broadway and then went to Las Vegas to the Dunes, and we were doing very good business. It was doing okay. I got exhausted because it was eight shows. I mean, eight nights and seven nights a week, and two shows a night. That's crazy. That's crazy. Fight every night.
3: What about uh, All American? Oh, okay. <laughs> we've talked to uh, we've talked to Charles Strauss. We've talked to Lee Adams. Anita Gillette. Anita Gillette. We had a nice conversation with Anita. Um, but oh, I loved it. Uh, she's so special. Uh, we're we're curious what how this experience was for you on All American. I happen to it's one of my favorite scores. Same here. Um, and and yet we know that there was quite a lot of uh, a lot happened in the we making of this show. Oh, oh, oh. It's probably one of the worst experiences, but the funniest experience. Oh, in oh my, my gosh, mind. please tell. I mean, it, it is really, this is a story you,
2: you really need to know. It's, it, it's amazing. First of all, I get back to New York, and um, I did some other stuff in between, but I get two scripts. Uh, Eric calls me and Eric Shepard says, "Well, they want they want you. uh, Hal Prince wants you to do a funny thing happened on his new show." Oh yeah. What is it? It's called a funny thing happened on the way to forum. And I said, "Oh, who's writing it?" And he said, "Well, it's going to be the first show that uh, Stephen Sondheim writes." And I said, "Oh, really?" And he said, "Well, I also." And I said, "Oh, what's that?" And he said, "Well, it's Josh Logan, which is to me was very exciting. Yeah. we're talking Pacific. We're talking you know hit after hit after hit. And and he said, and and this was what? And he said, and it's going to be by Strauss and Adams, who just wrote Bye Bye Birdie. I mean, yeah, that's a hit. great score. Yeah, How could it Tail." And, and he said, uh, on top of that, he said, Ray Bulger is going to star in it. And he said, you'll co-star under... Eileen Hurley, and you're going to be opposite Anita Gillette. You know, she's the gal who took over for Anna Maria Albergetti and in, in Carnival oh, and yeah. made a big smash. We all knew that. I mean, that was a really big deal. Yeah. Anita, you know, just became a star overnight by stepping in for Anna Maria. And so, and they said, and you know, it's going to. Uh, yeah, oh, the other thing. Well, the two things that Eric said at the time. You have to remember that Stephen Sondheim had a reputation as being a great lyricist but a terrible songwriter. I mean, they said that. Those are the words they used. They said, you know, he can't write a a melody line that anybody can sing or hum. And Eric Shepherd said this to me, and I said, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, I'm, you know, I guess I'm 23 at this point. And so, he said, and besides, Ron, he said, you've worked with Hal and George Abbott before. You need to, you know, see what it's like to work with somebody else. And I had, I thought, well, yeah, I'm I'm sure they'll all be like George and... Uh, Mr. Abbott and Al and I said and he said besides he said it's gonna be up at Winter Garden he said do you know how big your name is gonna be it's gonna be a half a block long <laughs> oh. and, and I said oh yeah that would be interesting and I thought of it, Winter Garden I thought oh gosh that's where Al Jolson had his runway put in the middle of it and you know, that's a, an old, old, I mean a really historic theater and I yeah. thought that would be really great to play and my goodness mm-hmm. to be on a stage where Al Jolson performed. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. And um, So it all sounded wonderful and Hal Prince's show sounded less than that. In fact, most of Broadway didn't think it had a chance really. And um, so anyway, I took this glamorous, wonderful sounding thing at the Winter Garden with Josh Logan and Ray Bolger and opposite Anita Gillette and, you know, it was going to be, it was going to be wonderful and I was going to be Bricker the Kicker. So we go into rehearsal and I came home from rehearsal and the, the first night, I said to my wife, I said, I am in great pain from laughing so hard. I said, Strauss and Adams play the piano, and Mel Brooks, who was writing the book, yeah. is Funny, I said, this guy is so funny, it's going to be a great musical, because it's going to be so funny, you're going to die, because these people are hysterical, and it was, and we laughed at every rehearsal, we laughed so hard, I thought I was going to die, <clears throat> and meanwhile, Josh was working with Ray, and Ray was always in a negative mood, I didn't have a lot to do with him, I had one number to sing with him, but... You know, I was really with Anita mainly. And uh, so the only problem that we ever kind of saw was that we always finished the rehearsal watching Ray do a number and everybody would applaud. And then we'd go home from rehearsal. And then in the morning, he would come back and Ray would be, With a cloud over his head about how bad the numbers were and how bad the show was. And then, you know, um, Josh would spend an hour bringing him up by telling him how good it was and do a number and rehearse. And he spent all of his time with Josh Logan, I mean, with um, Ray Bolger.
4: Yeah.
2: So much so that the number I had in the second act. I couldn't have done it alone. Mm -hmm. I only rehearsed twice before the opening, and that was the opening day in Philadelphia. We got to Philadelphia, and I had never staged. I couldn't have done it alone. That's wild. And I'm panicked at that point, and I finally said, I've got to stage the number. I have to do it. Mm -hmm. I don't even know where to go. And so they stopped rehearsal. Literally, they stopped rehearsal and said, "Oh, we have to rehearse. Couldn't have done it alone." So we did rehearse it and put it in, and it was, you know, okay. It was kind of, it wasn't the number I had hoped it would be. Mm-hmm. I thought it was going to be funny, and yeah, it was okay. Mm-hmm. It was just, it was, it was all right. It was there, but I don't know that staging would have helped. But then the real the real problem came opening night when Anita and I burst into the dean's office with Eileen Hurley and Ray Bolger standing on stage and do a number called Animal Attraction, which opening night was the third number in the show and it stopped the show cold. Huh. Cold. I mean, the audience would not let the show go on. Incredible. And Rabel is standing on stage watching. This is not a good thing. No. This was a very bad thing, but I did not know that. And so I didn't know what went on after the show closed. I mean, after the show went down that night, evidently they all met at their hotel. And I guess it was screaming and yelling time and finally the producer's wife, I don't know, she was hauled off to the loony bin, I guess. You know. So and um there was like screaming and carrying on and the next day I mean Josh arrived and he looked horrible and Ray was there and Ray's on stage and Anita and I are listening to notes and Josh said, Well, the reviews weren't that good, but we can fix it. We have a lot of things that are bad that we have to fix and Anita I I thought, Well, at least we're in we know the first our first number is good and he said, The first thing we have to fix is animal attraction. And Anita and I looked at each other like what? Are you crazy? What are they This crazy or what? You know, must be mistake. And he said, "Well, we have to cut it down and make it shorter." And we aren't going to have you do all the. We had a lot of antics. We were crawling at each other across the stage, you know, in mad passion. It was, it was funny passion. Yeah. It was nothing, but it was hilarious. You know, we were very funny. Stop the show. (laughs) It was, it was a showstopper. And so they took it out. I mean, they cut it down to nothing, and by the end of the week, they had taken the number out because it didn't work. How about that? All because
3: of Ray, probably because Ray Bulger didn't like that you
2: were... And let me finish about that, that first rehearsal after the show had opened. Ray is on stage, and Ed Padula is standing in the aisle, and Josh is out in the house, and he said, um... Mr. Padula, this is Josh. Would you tell Mr. Bolger to take four steps to his left? Mm. And Ray would say, You can tell Mr. Logan that I would be glad to take two steps, four steps, to my left. Oh. at that point... Some kid in the chorus. They were state again. It kind of went a few minutes, and then he said, "I want so and so on stage and somebody else." And one of the kids who had a little uh, walk-on moment to say, uh, "I don't know, telephone for you," or you know, some line like that. And he said, "Well, does that mean my part is cut there or what?" And just said. If anybody said, and screaming now, I, I don't know if you can hear me, you'll hope this, he was yelling and screaming, he said, if anybody says anything more to me about their part being cut, I'm going to sloak down on them like a big fat hummingbird and suck the blood out of their neck. At that point, Anita and I slid down to the floor, we were in the house. And we crawled over to the boxes of the Erlanger Theater, which had a little curtain that hung down from the railing. It was like almost on a level, just up about a foot from the house seats. And we crawled under that and stayed out of sight and got to the pass-through door to go to the back of the stage. Because anybody within sight could get the next shot. Oh, so, wow. uh, it was amazing, you know. It's a scene I had never seen and haven't seen since. And that's when I started thinking about George Abbott and Hal Prince. Yeah. And oh. what the theater
1: could be like and what it was like. Mm. What what attracted you about Lovely Ladies, Kind Gentlemen?
2: Uh, well... It was Tea House of the August Moon. It wasn't lovely ladies, kind gentlemen. It was Tea House, and I thought it would make a great musical. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize the problems it would have. It had a bad script, um, and it didn't have good direction uh, Larry Kasha. Larry Casha is yeah, that right? Yeah, right?
3: yeah, that's right.
2: Larry Cash had never really directed before, and like a lot of directors in New York, they're stagers. They aren't directors that understand acting. Mm-hmm. As an actor, I I could deal with those people, but they wasted a lot of time because they didn't they didn't see how to put the acting together with the staging they were always too worried about that and the book itself had a lot of problems and they blamed it on all kind, of, as they do they always blame it on the wrong thing they fired Bernie West but of course bringing in uh, David Burns I mean David Burns was so funny I could hardly stay on the stage with him I mean uh, did any of you see it were, were you around when that show was on
3: there are actually no, we're, we're we're a little younger than that, but there were actually clips on YouTube of the show, uh, and we. It's not we, a, or, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, well, even a clip of Davy
2: Burns singing, uh, "You've broken a fine woman's heart." I mean, I I have to describe. Uh, we're on stage, and you know he's the. He's the general or whatever, the captain who comes down. He wants to make Kabiki Kabiki like an American. He wants to Americanize Okinawa. And, of course, what happened was the Americans, myself and Ramak Ramsey, we all became more like Okinawans. You know, we changed our dress. We changed our way of thinking. Uh And he came down and when he saw how we had... You know what had happened at Kaviki. He he's, he takes out his wife's picture, and David Burns was the funniest man I've ever worked with. I mean, he this is a guy from Broadville, and he could he could wipe the walls with comedy and just tear an audience apart. And he looks at her picture and he and he's a funny little man and he says, do you know what you've done down here? What you've done in, in this whole plan? He said, look at this woman, my wife, what she's put up with all these years. You know what you've done? You've broken a fine woman's heart. <laughs> and he just this is ridiculous. Poem. And it's funny and I'm sitting on stage trying to look like but I'm laughing so hard within me I mean he brought, the house was screaming we had five numbers in that show that stopped the show five numbers that were so big I mean they just knocked the people out of the house and yet it was the theme that I think it was Clive Barnes who killed us, you know. I mean, it was. This was right at the top of the Vietnam War and the anti American, sort of anti Americanism stuff. And they weren't looking at the show as just a show. It was. I don't know. They looked at it politically. Yeah. It wasn't meant to be a political statement. It was just. A really great musical, it, it was absolutely funny. I was glad when I finally did Irene with Debbie because it was time's proof, <laughs> you know? What are you gonna do if it's Debbie Reynolds? You can't kill it. Yeah. And Irene, great experience by the way.
3: Yeah, um, let's talk about that. Sure. I worked with
2: great people. I mean, these are great actors. George S. Irving. Oh, we've interviewed uh, him
3: before he passed, yeah.
2: What I learned from that man, uh, would fill a book. Uh, working Ruth Warwick, who played my mother, Patsy Kelly. Uh, Ted Pugh. I mean, these are all people... Uh, I don't know how to describe how well, we all worked together, you know, it was such a, it was such a tight knit people. And here we're doing this show that everybody else I'm sure would say, oh gosh, that old turkey, you know, this is like not worth looking to see. However, when you have really good actors who want to play ensemble and can play comedy, and we all could, I would match my comedy to anybody. I put aside my singing voice, or how I looked, or any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. I was a comic actor, mm-hmm. and I, I loved working with these people, and Debbie held us together. Debbie Reynolds, yes, she was a movie star, and she wasn't of the theater, as they say. However. She was a very smart person and she saw what she had Mm. and she knew who was capable and she wanted capable people around her. And I'll tell you that woman worked and she worked great, she was terrific and every night after I got in the show, we started stopping. I don't think it was me. I, you know, the show just kind of, it kind of gelled together. Yeah. And we were working those early scenes that were comedic. And with Janie uh, Fell and Carmen Alvarez. Oh, yeah. Those were two great performers. You put all of us together, and I'm telling you, we were just like a... Like a little tornado on that stage. We all just hung together.
3: Who was the. the I mean, oh, go ahead. The comic moments were just
2: spectacular. And finally, we got to the point where every night it was a standing ovation at the end. I mean, the audience just jumped to their feet. Incredible. Okay. You know, it was amazing. Oh, who
3: was the director for that?
2: Well,. Yeah. It was, I (laughs) guess, feel good. Right. He couldn't. What happened was the great musical theater director. (laughs) Yeah, and he did not know how to put a new number in a show. Right. They would rehearse numbers at. I got this from Debbie. They'd rehearse numbers, and then he could never figure out how to put it in that night. Yeah. You know, how to people up and rehearse and say, Okay, when you say this line, then you over there, you say the first line of the new scene and then you and then you move into this blah blah blah, et cetera. Now let's go and rehearse that. Okay, let's do it again. Let's do it again. And now we'll do it with music. Okay, you got it? Everybody got it? Let's do the whole scene with music. Mm. And, then you, and then you're ready to go. Well, he didn't know how to do that. But that so they, he was, like, not paying attention in the show. They, the other thing was that they had put Janie Sell and Carmen Alvarez next to Debbie dancing. Yes. Well, Debbie's a good dancer. She's a very good dancer. But Carmen Alvarez and Janie Sell are spectacular dancers. They're in the wet burden, you know, they're in that level. And it's so clean and sharp and perfect that it doesn't make Debbie look good. You know, she looks not good. So Gower Champion comes in and takes over and he says, okay, Janie, you go all the way to the left and Carmen, you go all the way to the right and put other girls in between, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. You, you changed the focus and you focus the show on Debbie because that's what it had to be. Yeah. It's not like you want to kill Janie or Carmen, it's that you want the show to be focused where it has to be focused. People came to see Debbie Reynolds, do Irene, and those two names are what the focus of the show is. And I knew that when I went in and I saw it because Bonnie Markham was a really good actor. Bonnie is a a very good actor. He's a superb actor and he does lots of voiceovers and he's really from Hollywood. I don't mean that in a bad sense. I mean, he's, he's a good, really, really fine screen actor. But he doesn't understand the size a Broadway show has to be. You have to look at the theater and know how it has to carry. And you have to know that when you have to, the audience has to know when you come on stage and when you leave. Right. And as I watched on the week or two before I went into the show, there were times when I didn't know he was on stage. And I didn't know when he left. Hmm. It didn't know how to be large enough or how to bring it up to the level of musical theater that yes. Irene it was not uh, Tennessee Williams right. and it was not in a small house. you know it wasn't a 1200 seat house. It was a 2,000 seat house or mm-hmm. 1800 and you had to be it had to carry it had to be at that level. And I knew also you had to support the star. Yeah. And I saw that and I knew what my job was. It was not that Ron Hussman was going to get their attention in the first scene as being this great performer, not at all. As a matter of fact, he had to hide behind Donald S. Marshall and be subservient in every scene with Debbie. However, he had to be there and leave when he had to leave. And you had to know he was there in a presence that was strong enough to support her. Wow. And that's what I did. Wow. And so that when I got to The Great Lover Tango, it made sense. Mm. It was funny because you saw this quiet, dignified person suddenly let his hair down completely. And it was hysterical. (laughs) The number was funny. (laughs) And the fact that I, the first time I did it, Peter Gennaro came back and said, Ron, he said, you're too good a dancer. And I had danced a lot. I had partnered Donna McKechnie on the town (laughs) and Bernadette the jitterbug, mm-hmm. and I aims at sea for six months in Los Angeles and tapped until my feet were bleeding. Wow. So I knew how to dance, and I was perfect in the Great Lover Tango, and he says, Ron, 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 what are you doing? He said, you've got to be horrible, but how horrible strong. <laughs> and I knew talking about and so I was. I was a total klutz, and it made the audience just, with laughter because I was trying to be a great lover tango <laughs> that,
3: because you want opposites are what makes funny yeah and you put opposites together and you get laughs that's a good lesson true
2: story and then when I bought Can Can at the end my last show was ZZ. Zizi. Uh, Zizi Jean-Maire was I don't know she was easily 15 years older than me maybe 10 or whatever and I felt a little uh, kind of uncomfortable there but I was ready to do it but the real problem we discovered we got into rehearsal and she uh, Abe Burrows, we do us get to a scene to do a rehearsal and he'd be standing there and finally I would say something like well should I enter from here? And he would say, oh, yeah, that's good, do that. And then I'd get on and he'd say, well, uh, shall I sit down at this point or shall I walk over there or should I be near her? And he said, well, yeah, that'd work. Huh. And then we discovered it was two weeks in and it became known that he was in the early stages of Alzheimer's.
3: Oh. Um, Wow.
2: and it's eight boroughs and what are you going to do? Right, you know, this right. is just at... Situation, and then Avery Shriver was doing the comic stuff, and it was terrible comedy. I mean, it was it was oh. absolute dead in the forties, you know, or right, 50s.
3: right, yeah, fifty. It
2: was hardly funny. It was only because Hans Conrad at that time was very funny and could make it work. You know, that was a case of having Hans Conried. Who knew what he was doing on stage uh, work with material that wasn't that great but he made it great kind of like Davy Burns was able to do with right. anything but if you gave him good stuff he was even funnier but uh, Avery was not a Broadway performer he had done some theater but he was a lot of movie and television mm-hmm. you know and his kind of stuff was well, if you don't have a director, what the heck are you going to do to put two stories together, you know? And so you had oh, the guys who are playing the comedy, they don't, they didn't gel at all. And you have Swen Swenson dancing and... Pamela Souza and you know none of these these are all separate stories kind of and you gotta gel this thing It he's yeah. rewriting like you needed to rewrite it and with him with Alzheimer's nothing's happening so they turned it over to Roland Petit who's uh, uh, Zizi's husband who was the choreographer for the Ballet Russe of Monte Carlo uh-huh. now you know, he could direct the dances and they were beautiful. And the girls that he brought in, they were French mostly, and they were like six feet tall with legs that started at their neck. You know, I mean, these were beautiful girls, and the costumes were all from France, and they were Absolutely breathtaking, and the sets were just to die for. When she did I Love Paris, there was this beautiful thing on the the Seine, and she was on a rooftop, and the the rooftop moved forward, and the Seine sparkled in the back onto great homes, you know, French apartment buildings along the Seine. And it was a breathtaking piece. I mean, just to look at, I used to go out in the house and just to look at that scene because yeah. it was so beautiful. And But there was no staging, nobody knew anything and we were being directed by no one. You know, there was, yeah. it was just awful. And my review shows it, it says, Ron, you to look like he was lost or, you know. And right. I lost it. <laughs> I mean, I was lost, right. you know. With there was with no direction, you didn't even know. If, if what you did even worked or didn't work you know you had no I mean Roland Petit could not direct an American yeah, no. first of all they only they only spoke French <laughs> he and Zizi talked in French and my job was to it is easy to talk English. Oh my goodness! And oh my gosh! So the opening, opening thing she has it where she's lifted up from behind a bar, and they lift her up and she lands on top of the bar and she says, "What is easy? Easy fire?" What did she say? Right? Easy <laughs> it fire. <laughs> she was trying to say what is it is it a fire <laughs> oh and, my gosh and you know and so then the first scene where she comes over and is i'm sitting there trying to not be the judge but to look like a parisian who's come into her laundry slash uh, nightclub and she doesn't she doesn't know if i'm uh, someone, a spy from the government or whatever. And so she that first scene, we're talking together, and they had me do it over and over and over with her to get her English right mm. so we they could end the scene. And that's not the way to rehearse a scene. And believe me, there was no fire between us I mean mm-hmm. nothing was wow. happening she never talked to me off stage oh I my mean, goodness she was interested in the dancing it wasn't that she didn't like me or anything she just didn't speak English
3: right 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 she, she knew her I mean, lines and that was it she knew her lines <laughs> um you so. thought okay,
2: that fine you know
3: yeah so if, can't, from that uh, so, Cam Can was in 1981, and I I know the answer to this, but I I still want to ask you, uh, why did why was this your last show, Ron? Well,
2: I, uh, you get multiple sclerosis; it kind of beat into things a little it, bit. Yeah. You know, I I immediately I went back to California, and I had this little catch in my throat, and so I kind of was resting, and then. I went to Seth Riggs who's an old Oh yes.
3: Very well known vocal technician. Yeah. yeah,
2: and I talked to Seth and he had me doing all these things. He said, Well, we'll get you into your upper register and all this stuff and I was going pff, 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 my lips, you know, doing all yeah. the good stuff. it all works, it's all very right. And nothing was happening and the catch was getting worse and within a month I was down to a whisper. And I had lined up, I had a, in St. Louis I had to do South Pacific, and then I was going on tour again with Juliet Prowse and Irma LaDuce, oh, yeah. and they had to give me a microphone, and I could hardly, I mean I, when I had to sing, this nearly was mine, I didn't have my low notes, I lost, I think I lost 12 notes. And I didn't have my, I didn't have any notes. I, you know, it was awful. And we thought it was my voice, and I was going to every voice teacher in the East Coast and the West Coast, and nobody could figure out. They'd look at my throat and say, there's nothing wrong with your throat. And they even said, you know, it's in your head. Oh. It's, you know, to perform for some reason. its It's psychological. Psychosomatic, yeah. And I got so I wouldn't go to a cocktail party or anything because people would say, "Oh, I've got a I've got a doctor you've got to go to," or you know what, I go to this person who puts uh, um, oats on their head and pours honey in their ears, or whatever. Yeah, I mean that's how bizarre it got. And finally. I guess it was a year and a half later, and I might as well tell you the absolute truth, I started having problems. I could not start urination. Yeah. I, I couldn't do it. Yeah. So I'm at this, um, uh, what do they call it? Uh, uh, doctor for. Urologist. Uh, Urologist, I had a urologist yeah. and he examines me and he says, You don't need a urologist, you need a neurologist. Oh wow. And I go, What? And so I go to a neurologist and then we start on a long trip. Uh it's probably MS. No, maybe it's not MS. We think it's probably Lou Gehrig's disease. No, they did the surgery and took out a section of my leg and decided it was not a muscle disease. So maybe it's Guillain-Barre. No, it's not Guillain-Barre. Maybe it's MS. Well, I don't know, let's just wait and see. Nine years later, I showed up a plaque on my brain and they said it's MS. Wow. And so meanwhile, I got a job teaching at Cal State L.A. in the theater department. And because I didn't have a master's degree, I was not allowed to direct any shows. I only had the five years on Broadway. Yeah, exactly. You're in the academic world. Yeah, yeah. So they had to keep track of me because they didn't know if I could teach. And I teach. I had kids screaming to come into my class.
3: Yeah, I bet. And
2: um, other classes would take other teachers would take my classes because they filled up.
3: Mm-hmm. It's amazing.
2: And they had, they had you know, but I. It didn't matter. I managed to get up to be assistant to the dean of arts and letters, and I brought thousands of kids into the department and into the school. I went out and in one year I did acting classes of of games and exercises and I would do a thousand or eight hundred in a huge auditorium or a gym and this was all in South Central and East L.A. I went into school where there were guns and there were cages you walk through to make sure you weren't carrying and where nobody spoke anything but spanish and you know Mm -hmm. and they were tough and i'd go into their acting classes and i'd do things and exercises and they loved it i don't really care you know i mean
1: when i was in high school i was desperately in love with musical theater and, um, you know, I could only read about it so much until my drama teacher introduced me to one of your videos. And I then bought the entire set and everything I know about the history of musical theater, and I teach it now. I teach it at three different academic institutions. Everything I know I learned from you. So I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you for all you've
2: given me. You know, that makes me feel good, but, I mean, I never knew. I just kind of felt like nobody ever really used it or got it, you know. Your teacher actually played it uh, and used the thing in a class.
1: Yes. Oh, yes. And it's and it's okay. still, yeah. I, and I know for a fact, from that there are a whole bunch of teachers across the country in colleges and high schools who still use it, who still reference it.
2: Yeah. I thought it was like dead in the water, you know, I mean, we never made any money on it. It was, you know, strictly, uh, I think I, but when we saw it for $325 or something, I, I can't remember, it was very cheap. You know. yeah
1: it was it was very cheap but I mean the, the what you were able to preserve in interviews from people who you know would not really sit down and go as in-depth as you did it's really a rare commodity Andrew was saying well, I
2: to, someday that somebody would put all that stuff together we had the we had the raw footage. And I would love, gosh, I would love it if somebody wanted to get that and, you know, clear the rights and do it, or, you know, I don't know, do it with people and songs and stuff, you know? I mean, that's what it needs. And I tried at the time to uh, see if I couldn't get snippets of the music and stuff. And um, (laughs) the Roger and Hammerstein office, Wanted, I think it was $600 per song per unit sold. <laughs> you know, I mean, that was just like yeah. astronomical. Yeah,
1: yeah <laughs> it's a, a little pricey. Things are getting a little bit more relaxed with that, but, you know, we shall see.
2: Ron, I, I but, have to... You know, we in the future, I hope, even after I'm gone, you know, somebody might get that and put it together properly with, you know, really good technique, good... Uh, television stuff, you know, I mean the electronics working properly and with people and numbers and let people see what it was. Of course.
1: Ron, thank you so, so much for this. We so appreciate it.
2: Great. Fun talking to you.